On September 30th, 2014, Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all times, who won 23 gold medals in swimming, was pulled over in Baltimore, Maryland for driving 84 miles per hour in a 45 mile per hour zone. When they tested his blood, it was actually twice the legal limit for drugs and alcohol, and so he was given a DUI, driving under the influence. Now, why would Michael Phelps, such a decorated Olympian, drive 84 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone and feel the need to use drugs or alcohol? Well, after the London Olympics, when Michael Phelps retired, he began to lose his sense of purpose. And like his car, his life began to spin out of control as he consumed too much alcohol and drugs like marijuana. There's pictures of him smoking a bong, all these horrible things. And he realized that he had reached his nadir, his low point in his life, and so he decided to check himself into rehab so that he might get some help. Well, while he was in rehab, Ray Lewis, who's a good friend, linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens, a Hall of Fame NFL player, gave him this book, The Purpose Driven Life. And there's a wonderful documentary done by ESPN where Michael Phelps explains how this book, the words of this book, helped save his life. For as you read this book by Rick Warren, we find in chapter 8 that the purpose of life, it says, bringing enjoyment to God, living for his pleasure, is the first purpose of your life. Bringing enjoyment to God, living for his pleasure, is the first purpose for your life. Bringing enjoyment to God. Does that sound familiar? I mean, as Presbyterians, if you grew up Presbyterian like I did, you kind of grew up here in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism, that opening question. And the opening question, I'll ask the question, if you can answer it with me, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The whole purpose of life, which by the way, Rick Warren went to Fuller Seminary where Kim Talley and Anna have been going to seminary. I went to seminary. Uh, Murray went to seminary there. Mark Laberton, who's the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, who was one of our Morris preachers, uh, preachers a few years back. It's a very Presbyterian school. Lots of Presbyterians hang out. Now, Rick Warren is Southern Baptist, but he went to Fuller. And I'm pretty sure in hanging out with all those Presbyterians, somewhere along the way, they told him about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He read that opening question and go, I have an idea for a book. He didn't give us any of the proceeds from the sale of that deal, though. But uh, anyway, but clearly, we're, that's the purpose of life. That's why it's, what it's all about. It's to bring glory to God, to enjoy him forever. And where do we get this idea? That's from what Kim just read a moment ago. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, right? Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, the Greek word for glory there is doxa, doxa. Uh, we get the English word doxology from that. And uh, Thomas Ken, in 1709, wrote the most sung English hymn as a part of a, a personal Bible study, a study guide. He wrote this manual of prayers for the use of scholars at Winchester College. And in his book, he wrote, be sure to sing the morning and evening hymn in your chamber devoutly. And then he penned the beautiful words of the song, Doxology. Sing it with me if you know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all should join the choir. You guys sound great. We got lessons and carols coming up. They always want to pick up that choir, so I hope you can be a part of that. That's great. Doxa. 
doxology. Bring all glory and honor to God and to God alone. If you've been with us the last five weeks, you know we've been going through the five solas of the Protestant Reformation to help explain what it is we believe and and why it matters. And the five solas are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. As we talked about several weeks ago, we began with grace alone. Kim preached on grace and how grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is through faith alone. And grace, of course, is epitomized in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God's one and only son who came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins. He lived in perfect obedience. He who knew no sin became sin for us when he died on a cross for our sins. Then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we could have the assurance of eternal life and the gift of a new life if we believe in him. Faith alone, grace alone, faith alone. As Paul writes in Romans chapter five, we're justified by faith alone. Just as Abraham was declared righteous not by what he did, but rather by what he believed. We received this grace, this amazing grace, simply through faith alone. And Christ alone is the focus of our worship because we're saved by the work of Christ alone. It was Christ's perfect work, his perfect sacrifice that saves us, not anything we do, but all that he did for us. And as Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and Scripture alone. As we looked at a few weeks, uh, just last week, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, affirms all of the Old Testament in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18, when he, write, he says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which again, it looks like an apostrophe. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Not an iota, not a dot. And the dots were the, the, the vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, the smallest stroke of a pen in the Hebrew alphabet, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus Christ, God's one only son, he came to fulfill the, 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 the Old Testament moral law and sacrificial law by living in perfect obedience and then dying as that perfect sacrifice. And he affirms the authority of scripture through this text, as we talked about last Sunday in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, Paul writes to Timothy and reminds him and all of us that all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're saved by grace alone, through faith in, in Christ alone, and scripture alone is our authority in faith and life. And in light of these four solas, the only appropriate response is to give all glory, all praise to God and God alone. Not to saints, not to angels, not to the Virgin Mary, only to God. God alone should receive all the glory and praise. And that's why I think that the Psalter, the Psalms, which is really the hymn book of the Bible, it's right in the middle of the Bible, which makes a whole lot of sense because at the center of every follower of Christ's life should be a, 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 a time of praise. And the Psalter ends in Psalm 150 with a psalm of pure and utter praise. See what I'm talking about? Turn in your Bibles, your iPhones, or whatever you use to Psalm 150. Now, the psalms were uh, meant to be sung in worship. And so uh, before I read these words, though, let's pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us and move us in reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you inspired the Psalter uh, to write this beautiful psalm of praise, this psalm that reminds us that all the praise and the glory belongs to you and to you alone. Lord, we pray that as we read your words, you might move in our hearts, that you might receive all the praise and the glory, and the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Now, the psalms, again, are meant to be sung, actually, in worship, not just read by one person. So we're going to do like a responsive reading this morning. I'm going to read Psalm 150, verse 1, then you read the even verses, and we'll just kind of go down that way. Okay. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in in his mighty heavens. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with sounding sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you were actually to read Psalm 150 in the original Hebrew, the first word and the last word is hallelujah. Hallelujah, which actually is a combination of two words. It means praise the Lord. But the hallelujah is the uh, second person imperative. It's like a command, you praise, or like the old King James Version would say, praise ye. And then Yah is the short version of Yahweh, which is the Lord's name. You, you praise ye the Lord. Reminds me of that song we learned in vacation Bible school many years ago. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Sing with me if you know it. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. Did you know you were singing Hebrew as a kid? You're bilingual, at least, right? Maybe trilingual, I don't know. Uh, yeah, hallelujah. And notice that this psalm tells us whom we're to praise, why we're to praise, and how we're to praise. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Notice that the psalm writer is very clear that it's only the Lord we are called to praise. For we read in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, as we find them in Exodus chapter twenty. Verses 3 to 6, we read, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve, the Lord, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, it's interesting. I was doing a lot of research uh, this week for this sermon, and I was watching a video, actually, of Oprah Winfrey, and it was interesting. She was talking about the fact that she left her church many years ago when she heard the preacher talk about how we have a, a jealous God, you know, from these words in Exodus 20. It kind of disrupts us, like, he's jealous? Well, she misunderstood what the preacher was saying. She thought that God was jealous of her or or jealous of us. God's not jealous of her or us. God is jealous for us. There's a significant difference there. You see, if God was indifferent, if he could care less who we worshiped, then God would not be a God of love. But because God loves us so much and he wants what's best for us, he becomes upset when we worship 
idols of this world, the, the temporal things that do not satisfy, that will not last. Just ask Michael Phelps. For he had made gold medals and swimming an idol where he thought that he could find contentment and peace and joy in accomplishing these goals. Now, what is an idol exactly? An idol is anything that we love or pursue more than God. An idol is anything that we love or pursue more than God. And idols will not satisfy. The temporal things of this world simply will not satisfy. But John Calvin points out in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he was kind of the reformer who helped start the Presbyterian Church, specifically in Geneva, Switzerland. He writes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Left to our own, our heart is prone to wander from the God we love. We are prone to be tempted to chase after the idols of this world. It, it, this begins at a very, very early age. Do you remember when you were a kid and maybe you signed up for a sports team for the first time, you know, and, and they may have told you, oh, we don't keep score here, but you were keeping score because you want to know if you won or not, right? You want to be on the winning team. And, and I remember my first uh, team we signed up was on a soccer team in second grade. I played with Cody Welch, and, and we didn't win that first year. But the next year, we actually won the championship. We're called the Blue Bruisers. We were undefeated, third grade. It was awesome. We got a trophy, right? And we had, a, we had a, a celebration afterwards. It was great. But then that trophy started to collect dust. In fact, my wife, I mean, my mom called me uh, months ago and said, Howard, what do you want me to do with all these trophies? They got lots of dust. What are you going to do with those? I was like, I should throw them away, right? Because at the end of the day, athletic accomplishments, while fun, don't last. They're temporal. Just ask Michael Phelps. Achievement on the athletic field or in the pool, while fun at the moment, does not bring lasting peace, joy, and contentment. We have this desire to pursue things. We see this not just on the athletic field. We see it in the classroom as well, right? You're in the classroom, and, and you know, if I make good grades, I'll make the A honor roll. And if I make the A honor roll, well, then if I keep doing that, then maybe I'll be able to get into that dream college that I'm thinking about. And so you work real hard, and you get into that dream college. Well, that's, all, that's all good. But then when you get to that dream college, you know, you realize, man, I'm going to have to make even, work even harder to make even better grades here so that I can get that dream job or so that I can get into that dream graduate school. And so you work real hard and you grind it out and, and you do, you get that dream job. But then once you start working for that dream company, well, you realize you're going to have to work even harder in order to get promoted, to get that raise. And so you work and you work and, and you achieve and you achieve, but ultimately you're not satisfied. I remember when I uh, graduated from Trinity University, I was working real hard trying to make good grades. I got, I got hired by Price Waterhouse. I was real excited because it's one of the top six firms, uh, accounting firms in the world. Now it's number four, whatever. But uh, I got in, I was real excited and I, I realized, oh, there's this ladder that if I just keep climbing this ladder, I'll be a partner like within less than 10 years and, and that would be the ultimate achievement, ultimate goal. And I kept getting promoted. It was great. And I got a raise. It was in the late 90s when everybody's getting raises, right? And I was getting raised every year. It was awesome. And, and I remember, you know, I, I, I did great. And one time we finished this uh, great uh, tasks that we had, this big project we had, and they took us to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. You ever been to Ruth Chris Steakhouse? It is delicious. It's amazing. And they let you order whatever you want. They're like, hey, appetizers, you got it. Wine, whatever, steak, whatever you want. So we ordered it up, and we ate all we could, and I walked out sick. This stuff doesn't satisfy. It's temporal. It doesn't last. We strive, and we strive, and we chase after the idols, but we find that these idols don't truly satisfy. In fact, St. Augustine, who was the bishop of Hippo in the fourth century AD, one of the earliest church fathers, wrote this in his book, The Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, 
and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Do you remember when you were a little kid? Some of y'all are kids. And uh, you would skin your knee and uh, man, it would start bleeding and you'd see the blood and you'd feel the pain and you'd just start crying. I mean, that's just the natural reaction, right? Because you're scared and like, I'm, I, I'm not gonna bleed out here. I mean, you just don't know, right? Skin knee and so you're crying. And, and what happens? Well, hopefully a caring adult comes along, maybe your mom or your dad or maybe a teacher. They come along and they, they clean your wound. They put a bandage on there and then they hold you. Now the truth is your knee is still bleeding under that bandage. There is still pain, but the pain's not as sharp. It's not as intense when someone holds you, when someone lets you know that they care. My friends, that's why we come to worship. God doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship him. We need to actively come together as the body of Christ. And as Jesus says in Matthew 18, when two or more gather together in his name, he's there. We, as the body of Christ, need to come together to remind us of God's constant presence in our lives. We need to gather around the word of God to remind ourselves of God's great love for us, that he doesn't just love us this much. He loves us this much. As Jesus says, there's no greater love than a man who's willing to die for his friends that Jesus died for us when we were broken, rebellious sinners. And he rose again for us. And we need to worship him. And as we come to this word, as we come to this cross, and as we come to this table, we're reminded of God's great love for us. And then we find our rest, our peace, our joy. We will not find rest. We will not find peace. We will not find joy until we rest in his love and worship It helps us rest in his love. It helps remind us of his great love. Yes, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. We praise the Lord and we praise him alone. And we praise him. Why? For his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. As we gather around the word of God, as we read the stories of God's faithfulness, as we're reminded of of God's love that he demonstrated in Jesus Christ, as we look to the cross and we see how much he loves us and we come to this table and we're nourished by the love of God, then yes, we turn to him and we praise. And notice how we are called to praise. We're called to praise him with the trumpet and with the lute and the harp and the tambourine and dance and strings and pipe and sounding cymbals and loud clashing cymbals, all kinds of instruments. And I think the basic message of this text is that we're called to praise God with all that we got, with our bodies, with whatever instrument we can grab a hold of, whatever we can do, we want to give him all the glory and all the praise. And one of the reasons I I love our church is we've got three unique styles of worship with three unique styles of music. We've got an 830 gospel service, which if you were going to go any morning, this would have been the one, right? Because you've got an extra hour of sleep. It's a great service. Uh, You've got 830, and then we've got 1055 going on right above us, traditional, and then we've got contemporary. You know, in the summer, we, we bring it all together and we, we kind of let everybody experience each kind of worship. But the focus of worship, if it's true, worship has to be on God and God alone. Now, we are blessed as a church to have some amazing musicians. I'm looking at Andy Chase right there. I've got Brandon Smith over here. We have Sarah Alms. we got some amazing musicians. Trent Sizemore back there. we got some amazing musicians. Chuck Alexander's upstairs. we got some the best musicians in Amarillo, I think. I mean, amen. we got some amazing musicians. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But they don't play so that we will applaud them. They play to lead us in worship of Almighty God. 
You see, on Sunday mornings, we're all the performers. We're performing for God. And in our consumerist American culture, the tendency in worship is to say, well, hey, how was worship? And you go, oh, I like this song, didn't like that song as much, or I like this sermon, I didn't like that, whatever. And we, and we tend to judge, right? But the real question is, after worship services, did God like your worship? Did you give your all to God today? Did you give him everything you had? Did you pour out your heart and soul to God? Did you empty yourself so that you just knew that, God, I'm giving you all I got this one day a week. On this Sabbath, on your day, I'm going to give it all to you, God, that you might receive all the glory and all the praise. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for the model of worship that he gives to us, that we should give him all we got with everything we have each and every week. But worship's not just for Sunday. As Thomas can, it's for every day. Sing that doxology every day. In everything you do, bring glory and honor to him, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. You know, it's interesting about this book, Rick Warren. Y'all know how many copies it sold? Over 50 million copies. That's a lot. That's a lot of books. They're like 20 bucks each, right? That's a lot of books and a lot of money. I wish he'd given us a cut of those, because that's where that idea came from, right? His Presbyterian classmates, we didn't see any of it. But what's most impressive about this book is actually what Rick Warren has done with the proceeds. You see, he's given a reverse tithe. What that is, is he gives 90% of the proceeds away. He only lives on 10%. Now, how did Rick Warren get to that point, right? I watched this wonderful video where he's giving his testimony about how he and his wife Kay, early in their marriage, committed that they were going to be tithers. And as Kim pointed out, tithing is the kind of Old Testament model. It's giving 10% uh, back to the temple, back to the work of God's kingdom. And so they said, we're going to be tithers, but every year we're going to give just a little more and just a little more, 10%, 11%, 12%. Because as they read the New Testament, as I read the New Testament, I can see very clearly that, well, the, the, the earliest church was not bound by the tithe. They gave well above a tithe. That's why they don't talk about tithing a lot in the New Testament, although Jesus affirms it in Matthew 23. But they gave well above a tithe out of gratitude for what God has given to them. And so they got in this habit of giving and giving and giving and giving. And God tells us, Jesus says, to those whom given much, much is expected or much is required. And when Rick Warren saw how this book was selling, and it was the best-selling book for months on the New York Times bestseller list, and it was translated in different languages, and people continued to buy and buy and buy and buy. He realized, I cannot take all these. Pro- I need to give this away. So he gives 90% away and lives on 10%. And it's interesting, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, my dad's Methodist, so we love the Methodist, Polk Street, those are good people. Uh, they, the, John Wesley, did something very similar. You see, John Wesley was a real published person. He wrote a lot of books, a lot of pamphlets, and he sold a lot of books. But he made the commitment early in his ministry that he was going to live, learn how to live on just 30 pounds a year. That's amazing. Now, that's back in the 1700s. That was actually possible today. It wouldn't be possible. But he lived on 30 pounds a year. And he decided, determined, that anything he made above 30 pounds, he was going to give away. Well, one year, he actually made 1,400 pounds on selling of his books and pamphlets. And he gave 1,370 pounds away. Why did he give so much away? Why has Rick Warren chosen to give so much away? So that God and God alone might receive the glory. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this beautiful psalm of praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We praise you, Lord, with all that we have, with all that we are, with every instrument we can find, with every voice we can give, with everything we are. Lord, may our giving and our serving 
and our living bring all glory and honor to you. For you alone are worthy of our praise. And Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive this feast of your great love, to be reminded and to be nourished by your love this day and every day. In your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen.